On September 27, 1805, in what was then the kingdom of Prussia, a son was born to the soon-to-be local tax collector in Heimerschleben. As the boy grew, he gained a reputation for being a thief, a liar, and a gambler. At the age of ten, he was stealing money from his tax-collecting father. He was stealing government money from his father already by the age of ten. When he was fourteen years old, his mother was lying on her deathbed, dying, and this young man, fourteen years old, was off playing cards and drinking with friends. His father, later on, hoped to provide him with some religious education. Not even so much to help him, but he thought if he got a religious education, he'd be able to get a profitable job as a clergyman. I suppose it was profitable for even uh, some of those people. So he thought maybe he'd get a lucrative job as a pastor or preacher. So he sent him off to the Martin Luther University at Wittenberg, Germany. And that's where he began to attend. And while he was there, he was invited by several of his classmates to attend a prayer meeting and a Bible study. And this young man went to that prayer meeting and began to hear how others prayed. Began to hear how they prayed and what they prayed. He began to hear the Bible taught. And he came under Holy Ghost conviction and realized that he was lost, that he was dying, that he was not saved, and that he would perish in hell were he to die at that time. So he goes back to his room there at the college, university, and he prays. He gets down on his knees and he does something which will characterize him for the rest of his life. He prays. And he prays that God would, by His mercy and grace, save him. He asks God to deliver him from his sins because his sins were very clear to him. And God did. God immediately delivered him from drinking and gambling and lying. And he began to actually preach regularly, pretty much right out of the chute. He began to preach and local churches nearby would have him come in and they were impressed and excited to have this young man preach in their churches as he would in his messages honor God and uphold His truth and His Word. His theology was right. And so when he would go to these churches, he would preach truth and people liked it. And he would, they would keep inviting him back. And God began to open doors for this young man. His name? George Frederick Mueller. George Frederick Mueller. We know him as George Mueller. And we know certain things about him. As most of you may know that Mueller developed an unusually powerful prayer life. Not only did he pray about everything, he expected that everything that he prayed for would be answered by God. He didn't just offer up prayers. He believed in the God to whom he was praying as the God to whom he was praying would answer. And he did. Many times and in many ways. Far many more than I can even begin to mention in the introduction to this message. But George Mueller was a, a man of prayer. And his prayers were answered by God. He wouldn't go to men and ask them for what he needed. He went to God and asked God for what he needed. And God answered his prayers. In 1828, he moved 
to England. And by 1832, he had come to Bristol, England, and to the Bethesda Chapel there, where he became the pastor and stayed the rest of his life there in England. And he also began there what was known as the Scriptural Knowledge Institution. And the Scriptural Knowledge Institution was established to help care for and provide Christian schools. And over the years, with absolutely no government help, just Mueller on his knees, that scriptural knowledge institution raised or received in our dollars close to three million dollars. And this is in 18. 30s. It is said to be closer to $149 million in our current day. And that's what they received just from prayer. What do churches, I'm, I'm getting away a little bit right away, but what do churches today do when they need money? They have all of these organizations. I get emails from organizations all the time to help our church raise money fundraisers, bake sales, whatever. You asked God. And God answered his prayers. In 1836, Mueller and his wife began working with orphans. They started with 30 girls. By 1870, they were caring for 1,722 children in five different homes. And as always... When needs arose in their orphanages, they asked God. He asked God. And God always provided. You know some of the stories. I encourage you to read his biography to get other of the accounts of his life. But God always provided for their needs. George Mueller was a man of prayer. He was a neat man. One of the neatest things about George Mueller is that if you've never seen a picture of him, What do you look like? He lived till 1898. That's 92 years old. And God cared for him throughout his life. It has always been my desire and my concern since the founding of Grace Baptist Church that we would be a church founded upon and governed by prayer. Some who were here at the very beginning know how much we prayed and prayed and prayed when this church was founded. We didn't ask anyone for money, but we go to God and we ask God to provide for our needs. It is prayer that we believe will help grow this church. It is prayer that has sustained this church and provided for this church. We need to be men of prayer. But beyond that, we need to also be like Mueller in his tenacious standing for truth and the name of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our study from this address of our Lord to the church in Philadelphia, which we have entitled Dear Philadelphia. From Revelation chapter 3, follow with me in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Why would you ask anyone else? If God is the one who opens doors that no man can shut, and shuts doors that no man can open, why wouldn't you ask God as Mueller did? We go to God. Because He's the one who is God and can help. He who is holy, He who is true, He who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept My word and have not denied My name. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know, He says, 
that you don't have much. I know you have little power. We've talked about that. We talked about the fact that they were likely a small church. They didn't have resources. And we can relate to that. He says, I'm going to open a door because I know your works. And here are the works that I'm talking of. And the first work that he's talking of is the first one that we addressed in our exposition. And we looked at this a few weeks. And it's keeping His Word. What does it mean to keep His Word? He says, you have kept My Word. And we looked at Psalms and we saw what it means to keep His Word as individuals, that we keep His Word in our hearts and that it's a a light to our path and a delight and it revives us as His people. His Word is vital to our very existence as a Christian. You don't know who God is without His Word. Yet how many people today claim to be Christians and seldom if ever read the Bible and worse, seldom if ever know what it means if they do. Because they've been untaught or not studying. As Paul said in Hebrews, by now you should be teachers. And yet you need to learn the elementary things. Read your Bible. Keep His Word. That's what he's saying when he says to Philadelphia. Not that they had Bibles, but when Paul would preach or send a letter, or when John would come and preach or send a letter, they read and they kept the Gospel that they had received. So we not only talked about what it means as individuals, we talked about the importance of keeping His Word as individuals or as a church. Because it's life and death. Those who keep My Word are Mine. Those who keep My Word go to heaven. And those who don't are of the evil one. Jesus said in John chapter 8. And we saw in John chapter 17, as Jesus prayed for His disciples, He praised God that they kept His Word. you know that Jesus is praising His Father right now for those of you who keep His Word in His intercessory prayer before the Father? Father, these are those who have kept Your Word. And that filters down into the church. And that's what we talked about last Lord's Day. I would hope, as unworthy as I am, as unworthy as we may be, that even now God would be by the throne of grace thanking God for a church that keeps His Word. As He's in the midst of this church, as He was in the midst of the church in Philadelphia, as He's in the midst of our church, that He could say of us that we have kept His Word. I know your deeds. As weak, as feeble, as small, as insignificant you are, you keep My Word. And we saw that. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Preach the Word. No matter what else. Preach the Word. It's that by which God uses to set men free. It is truth that sets men free. Preach My Word. And they were those who kept His Word. Today I want to turn our attention to the other work that Jesus mentions here that they were doing. He says, I know your deeds. And He said, you have kept My Word. And then He says, you have not denied My name. They did not deny his name. The first one was a positive. They kept His Word. The second one is, is a positive as well. But it's stated in the negative. They did not deny His name. This is important. Every bit as important as keeping His Word. And I thought I'd be able to get through this one in maybe one message. And after doing the study and the research, it ain't going to happen. Because of the importance of understanding what Jesus is saying to this church. You have not denied My name. I want to begin by opening up just a little bit of the meaning of what it means to deny. To deny God. We'll get to the name portion of it in a few moments. But just to understand a little bit of what he's saying when he says that they were not denying his name. And remember, they weren't doing what we're about to say. But to deny the name and to deny God 
means, as we learn from the language coming down from the Hebrew, it had to do with lying. Lying. That's not what you might think. But that's kind of the root from the Hebrew. Keeping in mind what we saw last week, and we're going to turn there again in a moment, in Romans chapter 1. In other words, they knew the truth, but they would lie and deny the truth. That's kind of the root of the word. They knew it inside, but they lied to themselves and to others. We'll look at that in a moment. But we carry this down now into the understanding of the Greek. And the Greek word here is aneomai. And the Greek word means to reject. They would reject. In other words, if you think about what we just saw with the Hebrew root, to lie. And they knew it. They knew. They heard. They had it. But they rejected it. They dismissed it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They they disregarded it. It speaks of seeing something which is right, which is true, and rejecting it. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn with me again to Romans 1. We did see this last Lord's Day regarding the truth, but I do want to look at it now as it shows how they denied the truth. And this is sort of a picture of what Paul paints here in Romans chapter 1. You recall that we read, beginning in uh, verse 19 of Romans chapter 1, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That's your conscience. You know there is a God. You know the truth about God. One of the things, this, uh, this came up in one of the messages in the last couple of days. You don't ever have to be afraid to tell somebody about God. You don't ever have to be afraid that uh, they're going to reject you or they're going to uh, spurn you or anything like that because what you say about God, if what you say is true, they know it. They know it in their hearts. The illustration that was brought up was about women going into abortion clinics. You know why abortion clinics don't want quote-unquote protesters too close? Because when you tell that woman that that in her womb is not a product of conception, that it is not merely a fetus, but that it is a baby, a living child, they know it. They know it. It is evident to them. They know it. They're not that stupid. But they don't want to hear it. And so what do they do? According to this text, not only those women, but according to this text, in many things, and in many cases, they suppress The truth. They suppress the truth. And then, they deny the truth. They suppress the truth and then they deny the truth. Look at the progression. Verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which is made, so that they are without excuse. They know it. They know it. They are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And how is it that they were professing to be wise? Do you ever think about that? Professing to be wise. They're professing to be wise in rejecting the Gospel. 
They're professing to be wise in rejecting the God of the Gospel. Isn't this what we have today? We have these Harvard elites. These so smart, educated people who say that our religion is a myth. That our God is a myth. We have this Carl Sagan who said that everything in the universe is all there is. There's no heaven. There's no eternity. They're so smart. They're so educated. And you are so dumb. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And they worship the creature rather than the Creator. And that's what we have going on big time with all this cosmos stuff now. They're worshiping the thing, the earth, the universe, the rocks, the trees, tree huggers, you know? Hey, we like trees. I like trees. like to see them. I like to use them to build houses. They're good for stuff like that. And believe it or not, they're a renewable crop. They keep growing. And we keep using it. Now, why would that be? Because God created it that way for us. But they look at it as the tree is the God. The eagle is the God. Oh, the dolphins are so smart. They worship the creature rather than the Creator. So they are denying God. This is a picture of denying God. This is a picture of the opposite of what the church in Philadelphia was doing. And again, I remind you of the pagan influence that would have been all around them. In their city. In other cities. What were they doing? Worshipping foreign gods. Falling down before idols. Remember that big temple I told you about? That big altar. And they had all kinds of big temples, all kinds of statues, all kinds of things that they would bow down. They worshipped Caesar. Caesar is a creature, not the Creator. This is what was going on. And so God is commending them for not doing what Paul was speaking of in Romans chapter 1. They were not suppressing the truth. They were keeping His Word. And they were not denying the God who created. They were loving Him. They were not denying Him. They were rather embracing Him. We live in a particularly difficult era, a particularly difficult time. Not the only time, but look towards the end of Romans chapter 1. Verse 31, without understanding. He goes through a whole list of sins, of depravity. And he says in verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. This is the climax of all these things that he's been mentioning, mentioning, which is so prevalent in our day. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And may I add, they give hearty condemnation to those who don't. This is what's going on. This is the suppressing or the denying of God. They know it's wrong to commit all these sins and to do all these sins and to live a wicked, sinful life because God is Creator and you will answer to Him. They know it. They know it. But not only do they suppress it and deny it, they do it. And not only do they do it, they give hearty approval to the rest of the pagan world that's doing it too. And we are finding that big time. This is what's being promoted. Sin. Could you imagine a president from the White House in America calling on people to repent? To sanctify their lives. To be godly people. Because that's right. And instead we have a president 
and a lot more than just a president in government today who tell us, sin, sin, sin. And that's right. They give hearty approval to those who are sinning. And, as I said, big time condemnation to those who aren't. To churches, to Christians who would seek to live godly lives. They are condemning us. This is denying God. And this is what we are finding more and more of in our day. What I want to do now is turn from the understanding of denying just God, which is horrible, but to also understanding what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia when He says, you have not denied My name. And in order to understand the significance of not denying His name, you have to understand the significance of His name. And all that that means. All that that means to God and all that that should mean to us, His people. What it means to deny His name is bound up in an understanding of His name. And for this, I ask you to please turn back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Here again is the account, as you know, of what we commonly call the burning bush, where Moses sees this bush that is burning and it is not consumed. So he turns aside to see, as the text says, this marvelous sight. When he draws near, God says, take off the sandals from your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. Amazing. In a wilderness. In a wilderness. In front of a tree. Where God is, was holy ground. And yet people come to church and they trample in supposedly to the presence of God and it's like a party with frivolity and fun and games without twice thinking that they are coming into the presence of the living God. So Moses comes to this burning bush and it is here in Exodus chapter 3 and you look down to verse 13, God's telling Moses, you got to go and uh, tell the people that I'm sending you. And He says in verse 11, we'll back up, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? So God's telling him, look, I'll be with you. I'll go with you. And then Moses says this in verse 13. Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and, and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What's well, Moses asking? What's your name, God? It's a, it's a legitimate question. He's kind of hiding behind the fact that Israelites might ask him what his name is. But seriously, he's asking him, what is your name? Who shall I say is sending me? What, what should I tell them? What should I say? And so it is here then that God discloses Himself to Moses in a new way. In a way that He has never disclosed Himself to His people before and to the nation of Israel. They have never known God in this way. And what does he say? Verse 14, I am who I am. And the more you dwell upon that name, and the more you think about what he says, the more impact it ought to have on our lives and a deeper impression it ought to make as to what exactly he's saying. I am who I am. Or I am that I am. Y-H-W-H. Often called Yahweh. 
also translated Jehovah. You find in your Bibles, whenever you read through your Bible, if you find in your reading and it says the Lord and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, that is this name, Yahweh, Jehovah. The reason that we don't know how to pronounce it is twofold. First of all, the Israelite scribes who would write this and copy the Scriptures, you know, they had to make copies of the Scriptures by hand. And when they would come to this name of God, they would stop. They would get up from their bench. They would purify themselves, wash their hands, pray, have themselves in a proper state of mind before God before they would go back to the bench and write the name Yahweh. And even then, they didn't want to write it out of fear of getting it wrong, so they began to take shortcuts and leave out some of the Hebrew markings. And therefore, we have lost exactly how this name was written with its vowel markings. Plus, they would not want to say the name for fear of mispronouncing it. So they would not speak the name. And this twofold problem has led to us not knowing how this name was to be pronounced, which is why you have variances. Some scholars, towards the end of the 18th century, I believe, determined that it was had these vowel markings and these other markings that would cause it to be Jehovah. And that's why we have that term, that word of God for God's name in several translations of the Bible and in many of our hymns, Jehovah God. I had a professor who would probably flunk you if you said Jehovah. Because it's a Yahweh. It's not Jehovah. He hated that, that they did that. And so he said it had to be Yahweh. Yahweh God. I like Jehovah. I had a 1901 American Standard Bible before the new American Standard. And it would always translate this word Jehovah. Unfortunately, so did the Jehovah's Witnesses, which make it rather unpopular in our day. But this is the name that God gives to Moses. I am who I am. If you look down a little bit further, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. I am Yahweh. Now, what is he saying? It's far more significant than the pronunciation. What he is saying is that there is Nothing. There is no one. There is nothing to whom you can compare me. I am unique. We always think in terms of comparisons. You know, somebody says, you know, wants to describe to you something that they have, and we, we know things, and we know about things, and we have those things in our minds, and so we know what they're talking about. We make comparisons. We were joking a little earlier that uh, several families in our church now have Honda Odysseys. You gotta have a Honda Odyssey to be at Grace Baptist Church. Or, Toyotas. We got people that have Toyotas. Or, we have several who own General Motors trucks. No, but everything I'm saying to you, though, you instantly know what I'm talking about. You think about what does a Honda Odyssey look like? What does the General Motors truck look like? You have that comparison, that reference, that database in your mind to which you can pull up and compare and know what I'm talking about when I mention these things. But with God, there is nothing that you can compare Him to. There is nothing like Him. There is no one like Him. 
He is unique. I am who I am. The great I am. He is unique. Look at Isaiah 46. We're going to come back to this area of Exodus if you want to put a marker there. Isaiah 46. And just so that you know that this is not me imposing upon that passage in Exodus chapter 3 what I think, so that you know that it's not just me giving you my opinion, let's hear what God Himself says in Isaiah 46 and verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? What's he saying? There's nothing like me. There is no comparison in your database of thoughts that can tell you what I am like. I think that one of the problems in the church at large today is we have become too familiar with God. We think we know what He's like. He's the buddy upstairs, the great guy in the sky. And we've just gotten so familiar that we've lost the awe and the reverence. The majesty of the God who we worship. The God who is God. There is nothing like God. You think you know God? You don't know God. His thoughts are far above your thoughts. His ways far above your ways. As has been said. I think it was Calvin. The finite cannot understand the infinite. We just can't. And this is what he is saying himself. Who are you going to liken me to and compare me to that we're alike? There isn't anybody out there. There isn't anything out there. That's why it's so infuriating when you hear these people speak about spaceships coming down to earth. That's how man got here. We see it in Ezekiel, right? He came down in a spaceship in the beginning of Ezekiel. It was that man from outer space. What are they doing? They are trying to compare God to what their imaginations know. There is nothing to compare God to. He is unique. And He's not a spaceman. He is unique. He is God. I am who I am. There is nothing there is no one anything like God. Nothing that we can even conceive of. Now, His name, I Am, His very name, tells us that He is very God. The very name tells us that He is very God. Look back this time to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. You know what? Go back to Exodus 3 first. Exodus chapter 3. Just as we look first at this I am who I am before we move on. I am who I am. And see some of what it tells us. First of all, it tells us of His eternal existence. His eternal existence. When He says, I am, what is He not saying? I was. I'm not, it's not I was like this, or even I will be like this. I am. This is His eternal existence. This is who He is and who He has been throughout all of eternity. He is always there. He is always alive. He always has been and always will be God. I am. You remember Elijah's taunts on Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal? And they're going, Come on! Do something, Baal! 
And they're cutting themselves with the swords and they stab themselves. Come on! And what, is, what does Elijah say? Where is your God? Maybe he's out to lunch. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. One of the references is to maybe he's in the latrine. Where is you? Come on, where's your God? Because he was not God. But our God was there. And our God showed that he was God because our God is God. I am who I am. The always existing, ever present God. This is who He is. So, His name tells us that He is eternal. That He is the eternal God. Always there. Always powerful. It also tells us that He is the unchangeable God. I am who I am. I'm not something different today than I was yesterday. And I won't be something different tomorrow than I am today. He is the unchangeable God. He is who He is and He will always be who He is. I am who I am. That's not going to change. Look at Malachi chapter 3. Last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, just back up a few pages. Listen to what God says here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, notice the word, L-O-R-D, do not change. In other words, I, Jehovah, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I do not change. God is unchangeable. Jehovah, I change not, is what He's saying. We change. We're fickle. Sometimes you change for the better. You know, it happens. People do change. People change for the better. People mellow, they say, with age and all that. People are nasty in their younger years and they, they kind of mellow. People, people change. People are fickle sometimes. They say one thing, they do another. People are liars. <laughs> they say they'll do something and they don't. But God doesn't change. God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so His name, I Am, even tells us that He does not change. And in that sense, He is totally unique. Totally unique. You know, He's unique even from those pagan gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. Because they, they were fickle. They, they would do all kinds of things to trick guys, to... To, you know, just to be mean and stuff. They were fickle gods. Our God is not fickle. He does not change. He is always totally, holy, pure. Our God is the eternal, unchanging God. And also, His name tells us further that He is a personal God. Now let's go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. He is a personal God. Just in the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Capital letters there. I am. I am who I am. That's basically what he's saying. I am. I am who I am. And I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Jehovah or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a new 
and personal revelation from God to His people. And part of that is understood in that it is a personal revelation to us. They knew Me as God Almighty, all-powerful God. There are a lot of other names for God used in the Old Testament as well. But as Yahweh, this is new. And this is personal. As we continue on and read in verse 4, And I will also establish My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered My covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for My people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh." Your God who brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I will give to you for a possession for I am the Lord. So not only is this a personal revelation from God, personally showing that He is Jehovah, it is also showing, because He does so by the power of His name, that He is a faithful God. I am going to give you what I have promised. On what basis are you going to give us what you have promised? On the basis of My name. I am who I am. And the great I am does not lie. The eternal God is the same. Always. He changes not. And His Word is always true. Always truth. It is never a lie. And He never lies. And so because I promised you, because I am who I am, I am faithful. I will bring this to you. So, this name, I am, shows us at least these things. His eternal existence. His unchangeableness. That He is a personal God. And that He is a faithful God. Back up to that personal God again. He reveals Himself as a God of grace and mercy. Do you know that never before in history, in the history of the world, has there been a God who is a loving God. All those small g gods. They may be a quote-unquote God of love. But the gods, like I mentioned a little while ago, they were, they were gods who loved men. Zeus and Thor and all these pagan gods. Our God is a personal God. And not only did He make promises regarding land, He made promises regarding redemption for His people. And our God promised to send a Redeemer. And why did He promise to do that? Out of His mercy. So our God, who changes not, is a God of mercy to His people. A God who is God and a God who loves His people. This is a wonderful God. This is a great God. He is a God who is completely faithful. His very name tells us that He is very God. How powerful. And I hope that perhaps even in this, just by seeing what we talked about this morning regarding His name, you can begin to see the wickedness of denying His name. Because you are denying who He is. You are denying Him as you deny His name. Just from seeing His name, you begin to see the wickedness of what it would be to deny His name.
but also just beginning to see the power and the significance of His name. I hope you can begin to see the greatness of not denying His name by embracing His name. And we're going to begin to go down some of those roads next week. But also, I hope that you can begin to see the significance of why Jesus so often said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. What was he doing? Showing that He is God. The great I Am. Because it is Jesus who is addressing the church in Philadelphia. It is Jesus who said, You have not denied My name. His name is also I Am. Because He is God. The divine Son of God. May these things be in our hearts and our minds as we realize what a great God we have. What a great name we serve. He is unique in all His being. He is a unique God. There's nothing that we can compare Him to. What a great God we have. I urge you please to consider that it is to this God that we pray. And that you would pray to this God, asking this God of power and might, asking this name, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Great I Am, to help you to be more like Him, to help your family, and to help your church, that by His grace, we would be a bunch of Yahweh worshipers in this place. Let's pray.